Thank you for recording that, and uh, Laura Lee, thank you for arranging for our church to be able to have this packing party. Lord willing, uh, all of you will be able to be a part of that, uh, and I mean, who knows what lives will be impacted in the years to come because of just packing a box. Uh, what, what glorious truth. Okay, this time I'm not going to forget Miss Tots. So, uh, if you have a child who's ages uh, three to six and potty trained, feel free to get up. They're going to be in uh, Martha. You can take them over to the Martha classroom, and uh, they'll be there for the rest of the sermon, and then after the service, you can go grab them. So, uh, but church, this morning, we are continuing on in our sermon series in Matthew's chapter 8 to 10. We're going to be in Matthew 8, verses 18 to 27. So if you will stand with me, if you're able, to read with me from the Word of God. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, in your mercy, may your spirit move in our hearts. Give us ears to hear and the tenderness of heart that is eager to receive. May we be changed this morning. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, today's passage is a difficult one. It's challenging, not in the sense of understanding what he's saying, but it's challenging in the sense of the content and what he calls us to. And it's going to push into some tender areas in our hearts. It's going to push there. And I preach today not as one that is holier than thou, or has all of this figured out, but as somebody who is convicted by what I find here as well. It's hard. It's hard. But I also want to remind us that these words are good. They are good words of Jesus. Well, before we get into our passage, I want to take us way back, well, somewhat back, to uh, the mid-aughts, the mid-2000s. You may remember the advertising campaign that Staples came up with, kind of that whole easy button campaign. You know, they'd have the commercial and people would find themselves in rather difficult situations, often somewhat humorous, and then like an easy button would be sitting right there and they could just push the easy button and take care of all of the hard stuff. And then little slogan would be said at the end, wouldn't it be nice if there was an easy button for life? Now there's one for your business. Of course, that was a pretty successful campaign for Staples. But sadly, the church, the American church, has liked to search for the easy button 
for following Jesus. We want that Christian easy button where it won't cost us anything and it won't be hard. We'll just get them saved, get them through the door, and then it'll be easy. But that is not the Christian life. The Christian life is not easy, and there is no easy button for it. Jesus leaves us no room for easy button Christianity in the passage we have today. Following Jesus really should radically redefine the ways or the way our life looks, how we live, how we approach the world around us, should change all of that. We are in this series, Behold Your King, and last week we saw three miracles kind of demonstrating the authority of Jesus, but also the compassion of Jesus. And now we're in this little interlude about what it looks like or means to follow Jesus. It's a little interlude on discipleship, and that's followed by three more miracles, the first of which we actually read. It's Jesus calming the storm. So again, we're seeing His authority, but we're also seeing what our response ought to be to His authority, to His authority. So, in the passage that we read, we start with this kind of call to discipleship. People have been coming around, they're checking out Jesus. We've heard the Sermon on the Mount. He's been speaking to the disciples and the crowds. He's been healing the masses, so he's collecting a group of followers. There's a large group, and today we kind of meet two quasi-disciples. We first get this scribe, and he's described as a disciple because then Matthew goes on to say another one of the disciples. Now, we shouldn't think of these guys as the disciples, but they are people who are around Jesus. They're checking Him out. And what Jesus says to them is shocking and, quite honestly, a little bit rude. He says hard stuff to them. Hard stuff. And this section ultimately is revealing that discipleship requires surrendering everything to Jesus. It'll cost you something. It'll cost you everything in reality. All right. In light of it costing us everything, here's our first point for today. Following Jesus will cost you everything. Following Jesus will cost you everything. So I want to dive into the text, and we're going to see kind of specifically first this scribe. Because in the text, in, the, in this first section, this, this first half where he talks about discipleship, you, you get Jesus pushing into two things. First, comfort, and then secondly, our priorities, but specifically the priority of family. So let's look at the scribe and see uh, kind of his little situation. So the scribe comes up, says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, just a little hint, when people call Jesus teacher in the book of Matthew, that's not a good thing. The people who call Jesus teachers are usually the scribes and the Pharisees. Actually, it's almost always the scribes and the Pharisees, those people who are outside the kingdom of God, those who are pushing against Jesus. The only other person to call Jesus teacher is Judas, okay? So Matthew is giving us a clue as to where this guy's heart is by having him address Jesus as teacher. Now, that's not universal over all the Gospels, but in Matthew, that is the case. Also, our English translation really doesn't help us out much. He says, I will follow you wherever you go. That may sound like this grand, I'm laying my life down for you, Jesus. Wherever you say for me to go, I'll go. That's actually not what's being said here. This kind of could be, and I would say should be translated, hey, wherever you may be departing to, I'll go with you. That type of idea. It's kind of this, oh, I'll continue to check you out, Jesus. I think that's a little more of a clearer translation of what's happening here. But look what Jesus says. He basically says, there's not going to be any comfort. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. 
there will be no comfort. One of the dangers for us in our Christian culture today is that we have believed that comfort is an expectation and right in the Christian life. But we are not promised. We are not given the right of comfort. If we are truly following Jesus, it may cost us everything. Our homes, our security. There may be no comfort for us. There was no comfort for Jesus. Jesus is not asking us to do anything He hasn't already done. I love saying that. You know, I've said that before as I preach, but it's true. Jesus never asked us to lay down more than He's ever laid down Himself. He says the Son of Man doesn't have these things. Now, when He calls Himself the Son of Man, this is the first time He refers to Himself as the Son of Man in the book of Matthew, and this is the way Jesus likes to talk about Himself, the Son of Man. So what's going on here when He says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head? Well, his original hearers would have heard Son of Man, and it would have emphasized for them his humanity. Ezekiel, as a prophet, often described himself as the Son of Man. So as they're following this guy around who is a teacher and prophet and rabbi and and, and somebody who is kind of just proclaiming the words of God, they're seeing him speaking kind of in a similar vein as Ezekiel. However, Matthew continues to develop the theme of the Son of Man throughout the book of Matthew, and it's often, find by, it's often found, by the way, kind of juxtaposed or put together with the idea of suffering. But by the end of the book, when Jesus is on trial, and they're like, hey, are you the Christ? And Jesus is like, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in glory. Matthew kind of moves the Son of Man into this image that Daniel gives us of the Son of Man. Hear this from Daniel chapter 13, or excuse me, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, that's God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So by the end of the book, you have this glorious divine picture of the son of man. So here at the beginning, it's pregnant with meaning. And Matthew's kind of saying to the reader who is going to read through the rest of the book and reread it and reread it and reread it through a lifetime, saying, look at this glorious, divine, righteous king who has a kingdom that will last forever, and now he is coming and laying his life down. That is the Jesus who is asking us to give up our comfort, to expect our lives to have no comfort. It's this king who has, by all right and all authority, the right to have everything. But he laid his life down for us. He has nowhere to lay his head. Okay, so Jesus starts out and he pushes into comfort. Then with this second quasi-disciple, he pushes into something I think even a little harder. The second guy comes up, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. That request seems pretty reasonable. Seems reasonable that you would let somebody go and bury their father. Some commentators have tried to say, well, maybe this wasn't really a reasonable request. Maybe he was saying he had to go home and let his kind of father live out his days, kind of caring for him. And maybe he wasn't that close to death, but as maybe a a first son, he was going to go home and take care of the family. and, And then he would come and follow Jesus. 
I don't think we actually need to go that far in the understanding. I think Jesus is pushing into this, this just very common thing of going home and burying a dead father. I don't think we need to kind of twist ourselves into knots to, to try to understand what Jesus is saying here. Because Jesus' reply is offensive either way. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. He says, no, you can't go. You have to follow me. Jesus reveals two strong realities in these statements. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. First, you see that those who are not following Jesus do not have life. They are dead. Jesus is clearly saying that. If you will not follow me, you are dead. Those are strong words from Jesus of Nazareth. Wow. But secondly, he strikes a nerve in the culture that they live and breathe in. He's saying your family is no longer your first priority. Your most true family is the family of God. You see, in their culture, their families were their first priorities, always. Their whole identity was defined by their family. And for Jesus to say, no, your family is not first, he is saying something radically offensive, radically offensive. This is a theme that gets developed in Matthew. You know, I'm saying that a lot this morning. I just, I just I love this book because he keeps going on and on about things that show up later. But you'll see later, he's come to turn son against father and brother against brother. Later on, he asks, who are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters? Those who do the will of God. He then continues to call the church brothers and sisters. And by the way, you know, when we hear that we are brothers and sisters, we're like, oh, isn't that a nice sentiment? Yes, we relate to others like others in the church like family. Jesus is making a profound statement. He's saying these people, yeah, these people, the ones that sometimes grind your gears and frustrate you, the people that maybe you have nothing in common with, those people are your new family. They are your first priority. Jesus is saying that about the family. Now, I think he's making a bigger point than just family. But ultimately, what he's saying, he's, he's redefining the priorities of his disciples. You know, if you think of your life as a pie chart, who doesn't love a good pie chart? You know, pie charts are fun. If you think of your life as a pie chart, we often think of, okay, Jesus, you get this slice here. And maybe we're really generous and we're like, Jesus, I'm gonna, you get half my pie chart. That looks really good. Two semicircles put together. Or maybe you're super spiritual, and Jesus, you get three-fourths of my pie chart. It's way more than anybody else's pie chart in this church. Jesus, I've given you so much. Or maybe you feel really broken and small. And you're like, Jesus, man, you know, I realize that the slice of the pie that I give you is really quite tiny. Either way, Jesus is saying he doesn't get a slice of the pie. The pie is his. 100% all of it. He says, this is mine. Now for us, I want to go back and push into the family just a little bit because that's where Jesus pushes for his culture. And if I was preaching in New York City, I would probably not go this direction. But I'm preaching in Sioux County where the family is very strong. And church, I say this as somebody who loves his family and cares deeply for his family. We sometimes care far too much about our families. 
and we do not care enough about the family of God because Jesus says, this is our first family right here. This is our first family. Do you see, do you see God as your primary family? Jesus himself prioritized his heavenly family over his earthly family. Think, think back to the Sermon on the Mount when we got the Lord's Prayer. How does he refer to God? Heavenly Father. How does he refer to his disciples? Brothers and sisters. Now, God has given us biological families. They are pre-fall. God ordained families before the fall. He gave a husband and a wife, and he said so they would, uh, a husband and wife would leave their father and mother and cleave to one another and become one flesh. And he also said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Families are pre-fall. They are inherently good. Children are inherently good. And I'm not talking about individual children. I'm saying the idea of children. If you have kids, you know they're not inherently good. But the idea of children, they are inherently good. So family is a good thing. But what happens is, because we are sinful and twisted, we take the family that God created and we elevate it above God Himself. It becomes our chief good. And when the family becomes our chief good, then ultimately it becomes bad. It becomes bad. Think about a pilot and a plane. Is the pilot's chief duty to get the plane from point A to point B? Or is the pilot's chief duty to make sure that the passengers are safe? I'd maintain that it's safety. The pilot has failed if he does not keep his passengers safe. So for us, we can take something of incredibly significant importance, family, and we put it above God's purposes in our life. And we put it above God's family. Church, you will only rightly love your family when you rightly love Jesus. He is the one who will enable you to have your loves rightly ordered. Do you invest in the relationships in our family, this family? Do you invest in those relationships? Are you close to people in this church family? I urge you to do so, to be close. Now, you may believe that you don't have any skills to serve, but you can have people in your home. You can go out to coffee with somebody. You can ask questions to somebody about their walk with the Lord. You can care for somebody in some way just this week. I had, a, I had a wonderful week, church. God gave me so many heartwarming experiences, but the, the best of all was Thursday afternoon. I'm sitting in my office, and the church gets a call from somebody who will not say who it is, which that's usually not a good sign. <laughs> and I take the call, and he just seems to be this elderly man who's kind of asking about our church. And he's like, hey, yeah, I watched you know, your church service and your sermon this past week, and I was really encouraged, thought you did a, a fine job unpacking the scriptures. And I'm kind of thinking like, okay, this is nice. Why is this dude calling me? And, I, and I'm like, okay, well, where are you from, sir? And uh, turns out, it, well, he just, all he had to say was Virginia Beach. And I knew immediately who this was. And this was an old mentor of mine who had called up to kind of pull my leg a bit and pretend to be somebody else for just a little bit of time. But it was a guy who mentored me and was my trainer uh, back on a mission trip in 2008 when I met my wife, Rox. And uh, he had looked me up to see what I was up to and had, had just wanted to connect with me. Now, his name's Bill. Bill is 87 years old. Bill cannot walk any longer. 
He's in a wheelchair in assisted living. He cannot get to church. But Bill is still investing in the family of God. His pastors are still meeting with him. And I'm pretty sure they're not meeting with him because he's a shut-in and, you know, they're just doing their pastoral duty of going and doing visitations. I'm pretty sure they're going and meeting with him to receive his wisdom. Because when he was on the phone, I'm like, Bill, what wisdom do you have for me? Tell me. Like, you have so much. And, and he had just taken it out of his day to call me, a guy that he hadn't seen since our wedding. And he was still faithfully serving. He can't serve much. But I tell you what, church, he filled my heart. You can do something. Jesus is asking for all of your life. And there is something there that he can use in the family of God. I do not believe that there is anybody in our body that God cannot use. God is calling you to be part of here. And I'm not talking about just serving in some like chore capacity. Yes, we do chores because we're a family. So yeah, maybe you'll, you'll serve refreshments or you'll be in the nursery or you'll do whatever. Maybe that's part of it. But families don't just do chores. Families do things together. They live life with one another. They develop one another. They go on vacation together. I know some of you, church, you go on vacation together, and I love that. I mean, it makes me sad, like, when I see a group of you not here, and I'm like, oh, they're having a great time. But I love that you're on vacation together. That doesn't mean all of you need to go on vacation with other people. That's, I don't, that's, pastor's not teaching you to, to do that. But it's a possibility. It's an option. All right, I've got to find myself on my notes. I've been, I've been going. Okay, Jesus is saying that being his disciple requires immediate obedience. It's a, it's a top priority, and we've lost that in our culture. Some of you say, Jesus, I will follow you, but let me go bury my father. I know that you're saying that in your heart. And Jesus' response, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. When Jesus says to you, follow me, what is it that you're asking him that you can do before you follow him? All of us have it. We've all got one thing. Or maybe a whole list of things. But what is it for you? Following Jesus will cost you everything. It'll cost you everything. But church, our Lord is so good. It may cost you everything and it may be hard to let go, but look at this. Jesus holds everything. I purposefully am going into this first miracle. The, the section we just read kind of stands alone as its own thing. There is a connection to it, uh, that Matthew puts into the next miracle. But, oh Lord, oh church, it's, it's, it's so good what we see in our king. Because he holds everything. In verse 23, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. We see this picture of obedience. And that's the verbal connection that, Jesus is, or that Matthew is making with the previous section. He was talking about discipleship and following. And here we have the disciples who follow. But what's the first thing that comes? A storm. This is the biggest point of tension in the book so far. We had Jesus' temptations. We also had kind of Herod seeking to kill Jesus at the very beginning. But as far as Jesus walking around with his disciples, this is like the first bit of action. Here's a, here's a little secret. Matthew is a very boring storyteller. He's a literary genius, but storytelling goes is boring. When you look at the parts that are similar with Mark, he takes out, like Matthew takes out all the juicy details because he's just trying to make theological point after theological point, which is fun to preach from. But here, it's, this is the action. 
So the disciples are following Jesus and a storm happens. They're in this boat in the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was prone to these significant storms that would arise, it still is, that arise out of nowhere. And Jesus is asleep. Our God put on flesh and fell asleep. He had a weak human body. He needed to sleep. And it's just so ironic that, you know, Jesus is going to calm the storm, but Matthew's like, he's asleep. What a beautiful togetherness, juxtaposition of the Son of Man who is serving and came and to, to give his life as a ransom for many, yet also as the divine king. Oh, it's wonderful. So Jesus is asleep. Verse 25, the disciples, they, they cry out to Jesus. They wake him up. And the Greek is literally, save, Lord, in the, the original manuscripts. Save, Lord, we are perishing. We are perishing. And what does Jesus do? He comforts them, rubs their back, sings them a lullaby. No! He rebukes, not to see yet, them. Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? He's not rebuking merely the quantity of their faith. He's rebuking the quality of their faith. O you of little faith is mentioned back in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 30, when uh, Matthew, where Jesus is talking about uh, the Lord providing, our Heavenly Father providing for all of our needs. And he's like, why are you worrying, O you of little faith? And so why is Jesus rebuking his disciples. I mean, I think any of us, if we were on a sea and this sudden storm has come and we're in a little tiny boat, you can go see pictures of boats this, uh, uh, boats of the era. They're not big. They can fit 12 people, basically max. It'd be terrifying. But Jesus rebukes them. Why? Well, think about it. This God, this God-man, who's been raised up by God to do something, obviously has not done this thing yet. So if they truly had faith in who Christ was as the eternal king, they wouldn't have to worry that he was going to die in a boat. They would believe that they were perfectly safe because they were with Jesus. But they don't have faith here. They have little faith, little faith. But this God, this God-man, rises and rebukes the winds and the sea. Only God rebukes the sea. We see this in Psalm 18:15. I won't read that for you now, but we see him, him rebuking the waves. And that is the kind of man that we have here and that they marvel about. It's a man who rebukes the sea with a voice. He calms it. And this is why, church, you and I and us collectively can lay down it all. Where we can say, it doesn't matter that following Jesus costs me everything. Because I know that Jesus holds everything. He holds even us. And the Son of Man who is subjected to the elements, he has nowhere to lay his head, controls the elements themselves. That is the Son of Man that we follow. When we were on vacation at the beach, Selah wouldn't go out into the waves on her own for obvious reasons. It'd be dangerous and she was scared of them. But I tell you, she would ask me to take her out there. She wanted to go with me, have me hold her in my arms securely and to go bob in the waves. And she would giggle and there'd be such delight and joy. But the only way she could get out there was to abandon it all and let me carry her. And that is what Jesus asks of us. He says, I hold you in the waves. I can rebuke the waves with just my voice. Do you lay it all down for me? 
What are we trusting in? As opposed to Jesus, our entertainment. Entertainment, you can always turn to that to make you think about or forget about your troubles. It's the same thing drugs do, by the way, but we are an entertainment-based culture. Our political systems, our sports, our hobbies, our friendships, our families. We trust in those. Well, as long as this is okay here, everything will be fine. Meanwhile, we have a Savior who can rebuke the winds and the waves. And this is ultimately, I think, a rebuke to us this morning. It's a rebuke to us. We are afraid and we are terrified of laying everything aside and going all in with Jesus. And I think Jesus says to us, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? I certainly felt that myself this week. I love that the women's retreat is faith over fear. Faith casts out fear. Faith over fear. Faith over fear. There we go. We don't need to be afraid when we have faith in Jesus. Satan wants you to believe that if you fully let go of everything in order to follow Jesus, you'll have nothing. He wants you to believe that. And I believe he convinces followers of Jesus that that's true. Say, Jesus, I'm trusting you for my salvation, but I'm not trusting you for anything else. Will you let go and cry out to him? All right, just a little bit of application to wrap up this morning. What do you need to lay aside for Jesus? What do you need to lay aside for Jesus? If you have time for fantasy football, you have time for Jesus. If you have time for being on social media, if you have time for video games, you have time for Jesus. If you have time to argue with strangers online about random political theories and theological nonsense, you have time to go talk to your neighbor about Christ. If you don't have time to be fully invested in the body of Christ, because of the good extracurricular activities of your kids, you can do one less good extracurricular activity. Church, I say that as a man who already we feel the pull as a family of getting our kids involved with everything. And so often there'll be days where we're tired or we'll kind of have to run right after dinner and we'll miss family worship because we're running around doing a bunch of stuff. And I am convicted and I am ashamed of how often we will neglect the discipleship of our children because we are discipling them in something else. We want them to be well-rounded. We want them to have good experiences. Those are good things to be well-rounded and have good experiences. But if they don't love Jesus and that they don't see Him as first, what are we doing? May our children not be the golden calves that we worship And church, don't hear me say, shame on you. Hear me say as a broken man who struggles with this well, as well, that we have a Savior. He will carry us through. He holds it all. He's worth it. Now, be very, I want to be very clear as well. I am not saying just do more church stuff. There's no attendance sheet in heaven. 
no attendance sheet here. But it is, part about, it is about being part of a family. And you do family things together. You don't miss family dinners just for the heck of it. Are we a family? Or do we just say we're a family? Church, I do believe that we're a family. One of my favorite things about our church is the community that we have. But we can excel still more. We can excel still more. There are people who have been part of our church who are coming around that need to be brought into family. Family. Church, Jesus wants your whole life, not just half of it. Following Jesus will cost you everything. But oh, it'll bring you everything. Because Jesus holds everything. Let me pray. Jesus, we love you and we worship you as our God and King. Thank you for being the Son of Man who has all authority. Thank you for being the Son of Man who stills the winds and the waves with a voice. Thank you being for the Son of Man who calls us to lay it all aside and all down and follow you. Father, help us to not put anything above you. May you be our all. Jesus, may we be your disciples. May we completely and fully follow you, trusting you. We thank you that you are our King. In Jesus' name, amen.